Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as Mark Lemon Official on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I speak with mum, blogger and Huntington's Disease Ambassador, Kelly Terranova. Kelly speaks with me about her mum's battle with Huntington's disease and how it shaped her outlook on life. You can find Kelly on Instagram and Twitter as Kelly Terranova. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review wherever you are listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, today's guest is someone that I have recently connected with and once I discovered them on social media, I love the way that they tell their story and I just thought they'd be fantastic for the podcast and it's Kelly Terranova. How are you? Hi, I'm all right. How are you today? For the listeners, would you be able to just give a bit of an introduction as to who you are and what you do and all that stuff, please? Yeah, so um, I'm Kelly and I am a mum. I am a HD ambassador, Huntington's Disease Ambassador, a bit of a wellness advocate, um, a jack of all trades. I guess moving on to why we're talking today, and I was wondering if you could share with the listeners about your unique experience with grief, please. Yeah, I suppose my experience is quite unique in the fact that the person I'm grieving for um, hasn't actually died yet. Um, And my mum suffers with a disease called Huntington's disease, which is a um, neurodegenerative disease. It's genetic. So there's 50% chance that anyone, uh, any child of someone who has it also has the disease and you can get tested with a blood test. And um, it's, it's horrible. She's had it for nearly 20 years now. And uh, it basically just takes away your ability to do everything. So um, you become very clumsy and then you become very aggressive or very obsessive. Um, It can affect the brain in various different ways. Um, It stops your ability to be able to use dexterity in your fingers. So in the end, you can't drive, you can't cook, you can't eat, you can't walk. Um, It just takes away everything. Um, Mum now is at the point where she can't talk. She can't even have a drink. She has to be fed a drink with a spoon. Um, So it just kind of takes everything away from you bit by bit until normally something else actually, um, actually kills them. So pneumonia is quite common. Or obviously for some that don't have their families around, quite tragically, it's often an accident. Um, so it's, you know, to lay it out blunt, it's, it's called the devil's disease. Um, and it's, it's, that's what she's got. And as a family, we've, uh, yeah, like I say, we've been battling with that for 20 odd years now. And um, that's kind of, that's kind of my version of grief. I'm grieving for someone who I'm caring for and who is still here physically, but very much not here in many other ways. You were 18 years old, weren't you, when you found out that she had the disease? Um, are you able to just take us back to that moment when you found out? Yeah, so it took 
any other way really so I was upstairs in my room and my sister was as well I was preparing to go to uni and my dad called us downstairs and he just said it in a way that you just know that it's like a serious chat and to be honest I just wondered if maybe they were getting a divorce because mum had been quite argumentative which was really not her personality and me and my sister kind of both walked downstairs knowing that this was going to be bad whatever it was and then we sat at the table in the kitchen as in our little kitchen we had like a little round table and I just remember dad saying mum's poorly um it's she's going to get really poorly um but it's going to be okay and he just kept saying it's going to be okay and I remember thinking what what is it and like the first thing you think is cancer to be honest because it's so like you know it's like is it one in two now that get cancer the the odds are like it's just the first thing that came to my head and then not in a million years did I expect him to say it was Huntington's disease it was nothing I'd ever heard of I didn't I didn't know what I was being told um and dad was quite um black and white about it he was like I'm just going to give him the facts but he just kept saying that it was going to be okay. I suppose like a bit of denial in his own head at that point. But in terms of what the disease was, he kind of laid it all bare. Mum just kind of sat with her head hung in her hands. And I think because obviously in hindsight now, I can see that she knew the inevitable news was coming, that she could have passed it on to me and Emma. My sister, Emma, is my, is uh, yeah, she's four years younger than me, my sister. And she was also there. And, um, oh, it was just like... I can only describe it as like the rug being pulled from under your feet. Like I'd had a really quite blissful life before that, to be honest, had a very privileged upbringing. Um, You know, we had a holiday once a year and um, my mum was able to stay at home while my dad went to work. And as a child, you just think everyone has that life. I was very naive and just had no idea of the things that other people would have gone through. I just lived in this blissful little bubble, I suppose. And that was just like this moment that the world just wasn't, the same ever again and um mum cried when dad had to tell us that we might be at risk and just kept saying I just I pray that you two don't have it and I didn't really know what to do in that moment my sister she she was four years younger and she did show her vulnerability a bit more she cried and she walked over to mum and gave her a hug and said it's going to be okay mum don't worry and I remember just sitting there bolt upright like it was water off a duck's back just thinking what and in my head at that point I was thinking you're the big sister you need to be strong so I could see that my dad was getting upset and he's like not like that at all he's Mr Macho Man I'm in control of everything and now when I look back I can actually see that my sister was the one that had more strength because she had the strength to be vulnerable in that moment do you know what I mean and show her emotions I think it was only years later that I kind of realized the trauma that I'd experienced at that point by not actually reacting to it um and yeah it was it was the the weirdest day of my life because after that we just went back up to our rooms and just carried on and mum had actually tested several years before so blood tests that you have you have to have six months counseling because there is quite a high suicide rate of people who test positive and um she tested positive and they decided not to tell us because she wasn't symptomatic yet. And they said, we'll get to a point where it's right to tell the kids, but we just want to protect their childhood. We don't want them to worry about something before it's actually going to happen. So she actually carried that for years without even telling us or telling anybody really. Um, and then symptoms had begun to show and it sounds harsh, but we'd started taking the mick out of her for being clumsy, just thought that she was 
getting a bit older and being a bit more daft, you know, and um, that's when they decided to tell us. But I was off to uni two weeks later. So I got told and then went to uni. So I don't resent them at all for how they did it. I can't even imagine having that decision on your shoulders. And they did the best that they they could with us, you know. Um, But being told that and then being sent away was was a really weird, um, weird time. And I think my body reacted in a really strange way, to be honest. Are you able to just share with the the listeners about Huntington's disease and how it sort of progresses as time moves on? Yes, I think me going to uni, what happened was me and my sister had two very different experiences. So dad kind of said to me, this is what's going to happen, but it's fine. Everything's fine. Who else is fine type of attitude? Um, Don't worry about it. And I had said to mum, I don't want you to worry about me, mum. You know, I'm a live in the moment type person. And I just put it in the fuck it bucket. And I just didn't think about it. And then I went like, it's going to be so slow. You will have years, you know, you don't need to worry. So I kind of just was like, okay, well, mum's known for years. And she seems okay, other than the time she told us. And I just went off to uni and lived my life. Whereas my sister was at home at that point. And she'd kind of been left as the only child at home then navigating this new normal. And mum's behaviour was the first thing that changed. So my mum's like, she's the girl that gets served a pube at a restaurant and doesn't complain because she just would never dream of it, you know, so she's like really shy, really sweet, someone would give her a backhanded insult, and she'd laugh and then go home and burst into tears, like she's just the most gentle person, but she'd started to be aggressive, and uh, I had no idea this was going on, and this was the thing, nobody talked about Huntington's disease, and my family didn't talk, it was like they told us, and then they just got used to brushing it under the carpet. So that's just what happened again. And we all just carried on as normal. And my sister said one minute she'd be laughing with mum and the next minute she'd be swerving up, you know, a bunch of car keys coming her way um, because mum would just suddenly have this rage that she couldn't control. Um, And I didn't really know much of that until I came back from uni. And I remember one particular incident where um, I was upstairs in my room. Again, my sister was in her room and my mum had come back from line dancing, which was her hobby then. She'd been driven home because she'd just had her driver's license revoked. And that was like the worst thing for her because that was her independence. And I remember hearing her come in and then like a bit of a row between her and my dad downstairs. And it was just something didn't feel right. She was really het up. And I remember hearing her feet start to come up the stairs and she was in a really bad mood. And I came downstairs to see what was going on. And I just saw her launch a glass um, over the stairs towards my dad. Now, I can't tell you how much that wasn't that wasn't who she was. She just would she wouldn't hurt a fly. And I remember my dad's arm coming across to to block the um, the glass from hitting him, and it shattered on his arm, and his arm was bleeding. And it was just like this moment of um, complete autopilot. And Mum said, "I got to get out of here," and she was like trying to run away from herself. I can see now in hindsight, she she was freaking out that it was starting and she couldn't control it. And I ran down the stairs and just slammed myself up against the front door so she couldn't get out, just literally like a shield. And she just went for me. And none of none of her hitting me was out of wanting to hurt me. It was like a desperation. She was so desperate to get out of her head and run away from this disease that she couldn't escape, that has no cure, no treatment, nothing. And she was like thrashing me against the door over and over again, at which point I noticed my sister had come out on the landing she was only about 17. 
and my dad was stood there and he's got his two kids in the middle of this, his wife who's cracking up because of what's happening to her and he just didn't know what to do. And he was telling her to calm down and she was just getting more and more angry, at which point I grabbed her and slung her on the stairs and just said, pack it the fuck in. And it was just like, I was angry at her for the way she was behaving because I was angry at the disease as well. None of us knew what we were doing. And she she scarped off into the garden and just cried. And I remember going up to bed just like a robot and just lying in bed just so stiff and stressed. And I remember my mum coming in and going into her room and just hearing her sobbing her heart out. And it was just, it was just filling the landing. And I saw my sister walk across into her room. Again, my sister just this constant strength and vulnerability that actually has kept she's really kept all of us together by her ability to deal with stuff like that and I remember her comforting mum mum was holding a photo of her mum who died of it and saying it's going to be okay and then mum came into my room and she knelt down and suddenly she was just back to her lovely old self it was like this like different personality was coming into play and then disappearing and she knelt down by my bed and said I'm finally losing it, Cal, and just burst into tears. And I remember just both my hands were clasped really tight across my tummy and staring up at the ceiling and just thinking, don't cry, don't cry. Because I just felt like if I started crying, I would just never stop because it was just so awful. And I remember just lying there. And I, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't reach out my hand to hold her hand. Like we were really close, me and my mum, really good mates, could talk about anything except Huntington's disease. And just led there and she just sobbed and then she just wandered off back into her room. And that's what I mean about like this like trauma that I couldn't, I just couldn't deal with it. And it's only later on in my life that that's actually kind of reared its ugly head, I suppose. And I've had to deal with it. Um, back then, it was, the, it was the most traumatic thing I've ever experienced because there's not, there was nothing online. There was no forums. Any of the forums that you read just were horrific um there was nowhere to turn nobody who'd ever heard of it my mum and dad had asked us not to tell anyone because they weren't ready yet so we were just literally swimming without our bands <laughs> in the deepest water it was it was horrible um and that's kind of like how it started to affect her and then later on she started having accidents and stuff and that and that's when she needed a wheelchair um but it's really complex and really ugly and messy and nasty and until you see it it's hard to believe it God, it must be incredibly hard for the family and also your mum must have been so scared you know obviously hearing about the story and everything you've just said I can't even imagine the emotions and the thought process that she was going through at that time me and my sister have both talked at times about the anger that we used to feel or like embarrassment when it first happened because when it first happened you wouldn't necessarily know she was ill but one of the first symptoms is choking on their food but then they put loads of food in their mouth and start eating like a toddler and it when people don't know that they're unwell and they seemingly look fine and they do that it's like this sting of embarrassment that I can't explain but at the same time teamed with this like pain and sadness that you feel so sad that they're this scared and that they're going through that that genuinely manifests into a physical pain because you feel ashamed of yourself that you're embarrassed, but you are embarrassed because it's a natural reaction and you feel sad for the person that's going through this and you feel scared for your own future because you're like, am I looking in the mirror at what's going to happen to me? And it's like all these emotions that you, and you don't know, you don't know how to react and you feel awful for feeling them. Um, it's just really, really difficult. I mean, I, in terms of your own trauma and obviously you know, when someone dies, 
Um, you go through a trauma, you go through your grief and stages and waves. And, and I've talked to people before about cancer and how, you know, before they die, they grieve. And then obviously after, and it's all these different emotions. And is it only in the recent years that you've really acknowledged the trauma and the feelings that you had at the time when you found out that your mum had Huntington's disease? Yeah, I think so last year. So I, I started a dance school um, like three years after I found out about mum. And it was my baby. Like I grew it into a huge community hub, <clears throat> had like 350 students. It was, I lived and breathed it. And then I moved away and had a baby and I sold it last year. And it was only when I sold it and I stopped that I realized that busy had become my coping mechanism. And that if I was really busy and I was throwing myself into something else, I wouldn't have to sit with the pain because when I was forced to stop, I hit a massive, massive low point. And I think it was because I had to sit with that hollow in my chest and I had to actually acknowledge the pain that I was going through. And it was almost like, I still do it now sometimes where I just think, I just can't believe it. I can't believe this is happening. And I think it was only once I went through that, um, I went through another stage several years before, before I tested. Um, but I was still busy at that time. Um, it was only when I did that that I realized that I didn't, that I was never going to make peace with it, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like I kept thinking, oh, once this is over or once I find a way with this, I'll, I'll be at peace with it. But I've realized now that I'll never be at peace with it because it's not the natural order. She shouldn't have started to die when she was in her mid 40s and she shouldn't be going through the torture of HD. It, I can accept it, but I can't be at peace with it. And I think that that was the only time that that trauma started to actually come out. And I think when my son was born as well, um, I realized a lot of the things that I've, I've been diagnosed with PTSD in the last six months. And I think it's only since he was born that that kind of reared its ugly head because when I had to wean him, I was so scared he was going to choke. Every single thing he picked up, I assumed he was going to choke on and I just assumed he was going to die. I just kept thinking, constantly had this impending doom because my life is this big impending doom that mum is going to die. So I feel like everything... Then, then that happened with Freddie, who's my son. I was like, this is just too good to be true. I don't know if you've ever had that. Do you ever get like, where you just think this is too good to be true? Absolutely. I talk about it all the time. And it's, it is that thing that, um, you know, for me, obviously, my dad was killed when I was 12. So I've always had that sort of feeling of, um, yeah, things are just too good. They can't possibly be this good at the moment. I shouldn't enjoy them. Um, something is definitely going to happen in a minute, you know, that's going to change all of this. And And I think that was... I think it's really, really good that we're sort of talking about this at this point because the que next question leads on to, you know, how it's changed your perspective on motherhood and also, you know, the current time that we're in and on lockdown and how so much grief is resurfacing and people are, you know, feeling anxiety and their mental health is being affected. Um, I think purely because people have this opportunity just to sit down and think as well. They, you know, like we're talking about being busy, People don't have that sort of space to, to keep being busy. So they all they've got is their thoughts. Um, how are you viewing motherhood now? I think the biggest thing is, is it, it gave me so much more respect for her. Like I respected her insanely anyway. But when, when I actually had a kid and I thought about and I had to feel that love that you feel and think about that guilt that must have plagued her. 
and how she then kept it quiet and was able to give us this kind of like wonderful sim it was just a simple childhood but it was lush and I just think how strong she was and how self-sacrificing that is you know she already knew that her life was going to be shorter but she didn't think right well I gotta go sorry kids I gotta go live my life she just made her whole existence around making our life special and I just think that I carry that with me now with my son Freddie I'm like you know I just I there are so many things that I think that's not his problem. Like mum was able to do this, so I'm able to do this, you know, and she's made me a stronger person for it. And I think in terms of this this time now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I feel like on the one hand, it's a lot of my mental health issues have resurfaced because my coping mechanisms have been taken away. Um, some of them have been taken away. And, you know, we all develop this sort of like my dad calls it like a peaceful garden we all design this peaceful garden that's our little cocoon that we've designed to help us cope with whatever grief it is that we're navigating and then once one of those jigsaw pieces is taken away you're like oh god but I also think that even though that's happened and even though I've probably been through a really difficult time in my headspace throughout this I do think that I've noticed that people who've already been through something traumatic, it's like lockdown. It's like, this is my home turf. I'm like, oh, shit's going wrong. All right. Yeah, cool. No, yeah. I can do, I can do shit going wrong. This is my home ground. Like, it feels like I've noticed more people who, so like people who are already vulnerable in society have actually really sat this out well. And I think it's because they're used to feeling uncomfortable like life is uncomfortable for me I'm comfortable being uncomfortable and you know even when the the dark sides reared its ugly head they've got that strength to sit through it because they're like life is shit sometimes and I, I've been through this you know yeah no I, I completely agree with that one I earlier this week actually I did a sort of a short documentary with uh, some people that are doing something on this exact time that we're in and um, you know one of the questions was around that um, was around grief and how those that might not have been touched by grief before are now feeling grief in a sense their loved ones might not have died but they're feeling a, a sense of loss for the world that they once knew and how it's changed and um, yeah so I, I completely agree with you in terms of those that have been there and felt the pain of kind of been able to sit into this a little easier than than other people it doesn't mean that they feel better particularly I just think it's that they're feeling shit sometimes so it's not not as panicked you know they're like okay we're gonna we're about to go through another shit phase all right and they kind of like buckle up and like okay here we go again you know rather than the panic of like when's this gonna go okay my next question is can you share three things that make you smile when you think about your mum Yes, easily. Um, first thing is her smile. She's the smiliest person ever, which I love because part of the disease is that you get given involuntary movements and the mum can't physically tell her brain to make her smile now. So if you ever capture her smiling in a photograph, it's like that her body cannot contain that joy anymore. And I just love that because it's not a, all oh, the cameras on me, I'll smile. It's a genuine, I'm smiling because I'm so happy. So th that for me is the number one. Um, the second thing is just her love of simple things. She's never materialistic and she was always, uh, <laughs> the amount of times as a kid, she was like, Matalan's just as good as everywhere else. You're not going anywhere else. You're getting your, your stuff from here. 
uh, you know, I was never allowed kickers at school. Like everyone in the nineties had kickers. I had padders, which were like the shit version. <laughs> but now I'm older. I love that because she just taught me like that there is like lush. There's just a lush feeling to be found in coming home on a school from a Friday and having a fresh jam donut and that being the best thing about Friday, you know? Uh, and the third thing is just, um, how brave she is but so unassumingly brave so she's not like a loud brave of like I'm so brave everyone look how brave I am she just is brave in the fact that she swings her legs out the bed with some help obviously now every day and just faces the day again and I just I just love that about her when I think about her I think about how she's that she's just that quiet brave and I just think that quiet brave is just something really special because it's unassuming it's it's got there's no ego it's just true bravery you know so they're the three things yeah definitely okay my next questions we're moving on to uh some questions from the children at children's bereavement charity winston's wish and they would like to know how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad so one thing i learned um i suppose several years ago now was that I can't be happy all the time and I think one thing that I noticed was that when I was sad if I was trying to make myself happy it didn't feel as good as when I'm really happy um so what I try to do now is focus on doing something that makes me feel alive rather than feel happy um so for example I was um having a difficult time back in January um and I felt quite stuck in my head and it felt like every morning when I woke up I just felt very sad just very very sad but my brain knew that I needed to feel sad I knew that at that time sadness was an emotion I needed to work through because you can't have happiness without sadness but I still wanted to feel something I wanted to feel a bit better so I went surfing um, I've never surfed. Um, I was rubbish. And it was January. But it was brilliant because for that hour that I was in the water, all I thought about was surfing. And I had the cold water splashing against my face. I was being challenged to do something that I was a little bit scared of. And I came out at the end of the hour and had this rush of good feeling and was like, I'm alive. I just felt alive. So I, it's kind of happiness it is happiness in a sense, but I knew that I knew that I was going to feel sad again. I knew at some point I was going to feel sad again, but I wasn't scared of it. So I just, that's what I would say is do something that makes you feel alive. So whether that's, if it's raining, going outside and not caring about getting wet, just get wet and enjoying the fact that it's raining, whether that's sitting outside with a drink and a snack in the sunshine and thinking, this is really nice. I can feel the sun on my skin. I've got my snack. I've got my drink. Do something that brings you back to your senses, put some music on and have a dance around and break yourself out, out of your own head. Um, they're the kind of things I do when I need to feel happy now. Um, and then I just kind of let myself work through it when I'm sad, you know, because sadness is really important, I think. Well, that's a great message. Okay, next question is, what piece of music do you enjoy listening to with your mum? Well, I don't think the kids are going to like this one, but it's Cliff Richard. <laughs> so every year when we used to put the Christmas tree up, we used to play Saviour's Day. Um, just as a tradition, my mum's a massive Cliff Richard fan. And we still do it now every year. She put the she put the star on the top of the tree at Christmas and my sister picked her up 
Um, and I held one hand and helped her with her other hand to put the the star on the Christmas tree. It's on my Instagram highlights. And uh, it's just a tradition we have. So if I hear that song, it just reminds me of her. And if we're ever going to have a little dance now, um, we'll we'll listen to Cliff. Maybe the Beatles or a bit of Buble, but mainly Cliff. <laughs> Good old Cliff. Okay, the next one is, what three things are you most thankful for at the moment? Uh, my family. I think I've realised during lockdown how much my family are good for my mental health. And when I say that, I mean that my family, with all they've been through, particularly my fiancé, have learned that it's better to be kind than be right all the time. And I think that's a really big lesson that people can learn. I think when you face, my dad, again, my dad and I were talking about it the other day, when you face adversity, I think it mellows you out a little bit and you just become a bit kinder to people's circumstances and you don't have this need to be right as much. You're like, do you know what? They just need me to be nice. Um, So that's why I'm grateful for my family because we really know each other now and we know that that's the best thing for each other. Um, The weather the weather's really helped me through lockdown. The weather's beautiful and um, I, I would live outside if I could. And my health, obviously, I, I didn't know that I was going to be lucky enough to live um, a healthy life this long and uh, really grateful for that. They're amazing three things. So you've made um, kind of made it your mission now to raise awareness for this, um, this disease that your mum is going through. Um, where can people find you and how can they support your cause? So you can find me on Instagram, um, which is at Kelly Terranova underscore. And there's lots of information on my website, which actually has information for any HD families that maybe have listened to this, um, feel affected and want some support. My sister runs um, a company called Campaign for My Brain. It's a not-for-profit um, and they're trying to make changes for all people with permanent degenerative conditions, actually. Uh, but she's got loads of blogs and um, lots of support on there. She's a paramedic, so she's good because she's got the medical side as well as actually experiencing it. And then I do lots of different fundraising. So we did a cycle from um, John O'Groats to Land's End last year, and we ended up raising 32 grand in total, uh, which helped employ a new junior doctor at the... Um, University College of London uh, to look into research and they are trialing uh, gene silencing at the moment on humans so um, there is real hope for Huntington's disease which is why I raise money directly for research and uh, my next big thing I would like to do is I'm hoping to do a big dance event once all this is over um, hopefully where lots of people can come along and it's all about having a dance feeling alive celebrating the fact that we can um, and raising lots of money and awareness in the process Um, but any small brands as well that want to get in touch in terms of fundraising we do lots of stuff with small brands as well so yeah that's the best way to find us and that's amazing I'll put all of the uh you know, relevant links in the show notes so people can reach out to you um, via that way. But Kelly, I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on today and sharing your unique grief story because it is unique and it's the first time that I have had a guest on here to tell their story in the way that you have today. I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of this, so I just want to say a very big thank you. I really appreciate your time as well. Thank you very much.